So as many of you know, uh, I was traveling and away for uh, about five weeks. And last was here, I think, about six or seven weeks ago. And I was in the Middle East during that time. I was uh, invited to teach in uh, Israel, to teach insight meditation there, and was um, both in Israel and in the Palestinian territories uh, during five weeks. And so I wanted to give a talk on uh, the Dharma and the Holy Land, or we could call it the Dharma in the Holy Land, the Dharma and the Holy Land, Dharma in the Holy Land, And I'm actually fairly raw in relationship to uh, coming back. Uh, And and in fact, my my sleep is not yet normal. I just came back about four or five days ago and was was there as a fairly intense, powerful, emotional, sad, poignant, deep, insightful time. Uh, But I, I wanted to... Uh, connect, um, sharing some about the experience and also uh, having quite a lot of images, mostly photographs that I, that I took, uh, organized that through several uh, Dharma themes that I uh, want to really explore and illuminate through the trip there. And particularly... Um, particularly really three questions. One of them is related to identity and the question of our own, our own nature, the very basic theme in Buddhist practice. And this, for me, this was particularly uh, powerful and intense because my ancestry is Jewish. And so it was actually my first trip to uh, Israel and so forth. And so one theme is identity And then another almost immediate theme is um, how we understand and work with uh, dukkha or pain or suffering uh, because there's um, a very intense, powerful, unresolved conflict there. And how do we understand that? How do we work with that, respond with that on the basis of our Dharma practice? And so, and then the third theme is how do we respond to injustice? How do we respond to oppression? Uh, From, again, from a more, from the standpoint of our practice. And so I'm gonna take this time and next time to explore these themes. And I'm I'm, um, not sure if I have it all neatly worked out so I can say, okay, well, I'll go this far for this time and deal with these themes next time. I suspect that I'll, Uh, especially work with the last two themes a little bit today and in more depth next next week. That's that's my guess. Uh, And so in many ways, uh, giving this talk is part of my own integration process, as part of my own making sense of what I was experiencing. And I want to think that even though in some ways the focus is on a different part of the world, that the themes are very relevant here. You know, I think in the United States, we have some suffering and dukkha related to unresolved historical trauma. 
Is that the case? I think so. <laughs> and so I think uh, many of the questions and themes are very much uh, relevant for us. And I also just want to say that uh, um, talking about this area is very charged, can be controversial. And I may say things which, especially if you have very fixed views, may, may be triggering. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's very um, easy for a situation there to get uh, polarized between some sense of right and wrong and so forth. And I'm not going to go there in, the, in that way. So again, I may and I also may be unskillful and I apologize in advance for that. Okay. So uh, if I was unskillful, I probably wouldn't be taking the uh, adequate risks that would be suitable. So anyway, so that's my, that's my theme. So, and again, I'll have, I'll have images. Uh, we'll hope that this uh, system works. So um, I was invited by uh, the Israeli Insight Meditation Association. It's called Tovana and was invited to be there and uh, uh, to teach. Actually, I, I was invited to teach what turned out to be three retreats and gave uh, several talks and also did some, some other teaching. Uh, probably the total time of the teaching probably added up to about uh, two weeks. I was there about four and a half weeks, maybe a little longer. And so I did also did uh, quite a bit of travel. Um, the uh, the retreats. Maybe I should start uh, with my images. Let's see. Okay. Maybe it's okay. So. So um, this was my first experience coming off the plane. This is the, just what you see when you come off the plane in, in Tel Aviv. Okay. Okay. Oops. Okay. Um, so this is, this is my welcome. Uh, from the Tovana Association, you can see a picture, and that's the listing of all my listing of all my activities. Um, this was the uh, second retreat I taught. I taught uh, three retreats. The first one was on. Uh, in Tel Aviv about for about 30 people, a weekend retreat on familiar themes, on themes of impermanence, dukkha, and the nature of the self. Uh, and then the uh, second retreat, and it was this was, second retreat was like a more conventional insight meditation retreat. It was on themes of insight, loving kindness, compassion, Seven-day silent retreat wouldn't be so different. I co-taught it with two Israeli teachers, and um, I got to teach in English, of course. Um, and this it was held uh, in northern Israel near the Sea of Galilee. Has anyone here been to Israel? Oh my gosh! 
quite a few of you. So in northern Israel, it was held at a former kibbutz, and this is an image of the kibbutz. Um, in the north, uh, again, not far from the Sea of Galilee. And uh, then I also gave talks. Uh, this is a talk I gave in... Um, in uh, Jerusalem, I made three trips to Jerusalem. This was a talk given in Jerusalem. This was on the theme of socially engaged practice you know, in Jerusalem. And so I was in part invited because I have a background in connecting Dharma practice with training in social service and social action. And so they were interested in that in the context of being in Israel. And so this was actually held at a gallery in Jerusalem called the Bar- Barbour Gallery, which the uh, government was attempting to uh, actually shut down because they had been hosting uh, a group in Israel called Breaking the Silence, which uh, had been publicizing accounts by former soldiers of what they had experienced in the occupied territories. And so, again, immediately you come into this controversy. You know, So even just this is an art gallery, which which uh, publicized this and people were um, people were really the government was trying to shut this down let's see and this was this was then a a later retreat let's see I think there's oops wrong way This was another image of the talk in Jerusalem, and um, and this was this was a further retreat. We had about eighty people, not all of them are in the picture, looking at um, questions of how we practice and bring the practice out into the world. And they were they invited me to do that. Large number of the people weren't quite sure uh, about the theme. They came for a silent weekend, so a little bit of. Shock there, but there I was in Israel teaching about empathy and conflict. So very interesting. And you can see they're very enthusiastic. Actually, in Israel, the percentage of people who practice meditation and dharma per capita is greater than in the United States. It's quite interesting. And they, they, this association, this is a country of 8 million people. And they have, uh, they have about 40 retreats a year and actually are looking to build a permanent center. It's really been expansive. And the, um, the, in, there's a group of engaged practitioners who have a lot of quite wonderful collaborative projects with the uh, with Palestinian community. And so I learned about that and you know, and had had several times in the territories taken by people who worked with the engaged uh, community. So I'll show a few other images just to give you a sense of being there. And then I'll focus particularly on the the Dharma themes. What one other thing I'll say that I really uh, learned from at in the retreats that I really liked a lot was that they had an idea at the. Uh, at the retreats of having a of having the st- not a permanent more professionalized staff, but all of the retreats had people who wanted to 
serve at the retreat as a kind of retreat that's more similar to daily life. And so they, there was something that I think we have at some centers in the U.S., such as the Insight Retreat Center in, uh, connected with the center in Redwood City. But they had a very, very nice model of people who were interested in doing a very rigorous retreat, but in which they worked. And so and they would sit at least three or four times a day, and they, invite, and they had a, a one-hour meeting with the teachers every day. So it was quite a, a wonderful model in many ways. I was inspired by and want to bring back to Spirit Rock some because we, we have lost a little bit of that spirit. You know, it gets a little more professionalized in my, in my view. Well, they were, they were doing, uh, mostly doing cooking, but also just cooking, helping with the, you know, some with the management of the retreat and so forth. Yeah, mostly cooking and managing. Similar to here. Yeah. Okay, and I'll just show a few of the other places that I visited that, again, will be familiar. You'll get a sense of some of uh, where I was. Some of this will be familiar to people. You know, I landed in Tel Aviv, and I was given an apartment in Tel Aviv, part of the Dharma Center, where I, I could stay for the entire five weeks. And I, you know, so I had a place. And I have, just also want to say that the sense of warmth and graciousness was amazing. People were so warm and friendly and kindly really offering their homes, their uh, help. I had, you know, people would drive me from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They would, one person took me to Masada and the Dead Sea. Some of you know that and just very, very wonderful. So here's Tel Aviv is a very modern hip city. I was told that it's the has some of the, the, the best vegan cuisine of anywhere, <laughs> anywhere in the world. And I'll just show a few images of Tel Aviv. Recognize the, recognize the t-shirt? <laughs> Anyone, people recognize the t-shirt? Anyone raise your hand if you don't? Okay, so this is the uh, t-shirt from the uh, Golden State Warriors. And in fact, um, I was in Israel for the uh, final game. I woke up at about 4 or 4.30 in the morning and watched the uh, game via YouTube, the uh, game five of the NBA finals, right? So uh, anyway, this, 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 was, this was not uncommon. I had, I had someone at one of my retreats who wore a Golden State Warriors t-shirt all the time. So... Get a sense of the cafes, you know, a lot of cafes. There's another, other images. So it looks like a typical apartment complex in Tel Aviv. There also were a lot of high rises. And now um, Jerusalem, I spent, uh, I made three trips to Jerusalem. Uh, and spent a lot of time in the old city. And uh, some of you know that's in the news right now because there's actually, the, the day after I left, there was violence that developed there. You know, which there was a uh, killing by, actually by Israeli citizens from uh, an Arab uh, town in Israel. There was a killing of two uh, police officers who were near the entrance to the uh, 
the Al-Aqba Mosque, which was one of the holy sites, which was right, everything's very close. And the, actually the police officers who were killed were Druze. They, you know, they were not Jews. So it's kind of, it takes you into a lot of the complexities. So this is Jerusalem. And I'll just give, this is West Jerusalem, which is almost entirely Jewish, but not, not entirely. And then I'll just give you a sense of uh, East Jerusalem, which is part of the occupied territory. So this is a photo from within the occupied territories. I made two trips uh, into the uh, Palestinian territories, uh, both hosted by um, um, someone who works with the Engage project named Aviv Tatarsky, who the first time it was just visiting with a family. I don't have photos of that, visiting with a family um, in a village called Walajé where, where they were breaking the Ramadan fast in the evening. So we were invited into the family and shared the meal. It was very very beautiful, very joyful. And then the other time was about a five-hour tour around East Jerusalem. That's where this photo came from, which is part of the occupied territories. And I'll get to that later in more detail, but I thought I'd show you just a few images. If you look up at the top, the buildings at the top are actually a uh, Jewish settlement within the occupied territories, a very controversial part of the situation there. And you can see, I'll have another image a little more closely. If you look, you can see what's called the separation wall. Uh, I think this is, oops, no. Yeah, you can see at the top, there's a wall um, that is that is separating the Jewish parts of Jerusalem from the predominantly Muslim parts of Jerusalem. And it was erected, started during the second Antifada after a lot of, uh, suicide bombings and so forth, but it's very controversial. You know, it's called the kind of the separation wall by the Israeli government and it's called the apartheid wall by the Palestinians. So it's very, you know, it's a symbol of uh, a lot. So you get right into it here. There are some other scenes in the old city of Jerusalem. You know, a lot of uh, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox uh, people just going about their daily lives. This is the, you know, it's such an intense place. This is actually a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is supposedly over the place where Jesus was crucified, right? And also supposedly where Adam was buried, you know, the old Adam, right? And so you have all, and all these places are within, you know, you have the Western Wall, this church and the uh, holy, you know, the third holiest Muslim site called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, all within about a hundred yards. Right, so it's yeah. There's a view of one of one of the sacred mosques in Jerusalem. You see, it's all very very close. This is from a cafe. You can see the cat actually drinking some milk. Okay, so we'll go back. So you get a sense. I also went to a number of other places, which I have some other images of, which I'll, I may I may show uh, next time. I, I was the other places I particularly visited where it was, uh, you know, uh, in addition to Jerusalem, where it was uh, there was a city in the north called Sfat, which is uh, or also called Safed, or spelled Safed, which is uh, the city of the uh, Kabbalah. 
the Jew, of Jewish mysticism, a very amazing place. I spent several days there, met with a number of Kabbalistic rabbis. And um, Kabbalah, again, is the sort of the deepest or highest, in many ways, some would say Jewish spirituality. And it's, you know, it's a mystical tradition, which scholars say dates from about a thousand years ago, maybe a little bit less. And so I was exposed to that some as well. And also went to further in the north, uh, also sort of an eco-spiritual community and stayed there for some time. So got a pretty good exposure, floated in the Dead Sea, you know, and so forth. So now now let me go into the different themes that I wanted to talk about. These are more to, so you get a little little bit of background. And wanted to talk about um, the themes I mentioned before. The first one is identity. And this is a very interesting question, I think, uh, for many of us. you know, we have the traditional teaching of anatta or not-self, which I've taught on quite a bit here, uh, that we have uh, really a teaching about that there's no ultimate or permanent sense of identity. You know, that rather the sense of self is something more relative. And we have a sense of um, different ways of practicing that help us to have a sense of um, the impermanent nature of what we call ourself. So this is often, as I've mentioned, a very confusing teaching. And it's, yet it's right at the center of things. And it really, for many of us in the West, it raises questions of how do we really work with teachings about identity, about the nature of self. And I've tried to simplify, as you know, those teachings by pointing in two directions with this teaching. One of them is, is that this really points to ways of experiencing in which the sense of self is minimal or very thinned out. And I've made the case in our uh, group here that in, in many ways that sense of uh, having very little sense of self is connected with, for us with some of our most profound experiences when we're most connected with the natural world, when we're with people where we have almost no sense of boundary, when there's a sense of deep love and communion with others, when we're engaged in creative activities like in music or art, there can be very little sense of self. And I've given examples as well from sports, you know, whereas there's that when we're most fully engaged, it's something like that sense of flow or... um, being fully engaged in something, there's often very little sense of self, and yet we're fully engaged. And that's one way to start to understand the sense of, of not-self in the teachings. And we also have you know, ways of practicing in a more meditative way where we open up to this sense of experiencing without much of a sense of self. When we experience and we just notice, oh, there's a thought, there's a memory, there's this there's that, there's uh, an emotion, there's a body sensation. And increasingly, we can have a sense of awareness being that which holds all phenomena. And this moves towards a sense in which is very little sense of self. Then I also have talked about how we also can look for where the self seems to be more thick. You know, when we are reactive, when we're offended, when we feel insulted, when we're... Um, 
engaged often in interpersonal conflict, there can be a very strong sense of self, very thick sense of self. And part of the guidance for practice is study those types of experiences. How do we study where the self is thick? And the self being thick is not in itself bad. It's not necessarily a problem. You know, for example, I may have a strong sense of self because there's some part of myself where there's a wound or where there's uh, some difficulty from the past, where I have some unresolved pain from the past. I may have, um, you know, um, maybe, you know, one example I sometimes give is I may have issues that came from the fact that my parents were divorced when I was eight years old. And I may have a sense that, that I developed with that young age that if people get close to me, they will leave me, right? That's naturally sometimes happens when there's uh, a divorce, right? And I may have that and I may, when I meditate, find that there's still something there. I find when I meditate and I uh, look at my life, I may notice, oh, I have a partner, my partner wants to go away for the weekend, I get really triggered. What's that about, right? And I may discover that I'm very reactive because of unresolved pain from the past, in this case, related to something that may have happened 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And in that case, that will turn up in my meditation. I may feel, oh, the self's really thick, really thick sense of self. But that's, that situation is calling for healing, right? It's not calling just, oh, let me transcend my pain, but it's calling for some kind of healing. And we'll see that that's also very relevant in the social realm, that where we have unresolved pain from the past, something is called for. And that's, this is interesting. You know, I've also mentioned, I think, some of the examples from some of my teaching where one time during our two-month retreat, uh, a woman who was uh, a person of color and also uh, not of conventional sexual orientation, um, asked a question one morning, we had been having some teaching about this teaching of not-self, and said, when I hear the teaching about not-self, I don't know whether I'm hearing the Buddha or I'm hearing the man. (laughs) Do you know that term? Meaning, is it the voice of liberation or is it the voice of oppression telling me I should just get over my sense of self? Right? So it's complex here. And I think there's also, there's a lot happening in the interaction between psychology and meditation. But I think there's a lot, there are a lot of issues where it's probably too simplistic to say we just should transcend our sense of identity. So this was an interesting issue for me, being in Israel and the Palestinian territories, because my immediate experience in the first day or two, there were two strong experiences I had almost immediately. One was um, 40% of the population has my same ancestry, right? It's not something I experience in the Bay Area necessarily, even though there are a lot of people with that ancestry. But, you know, here it is... uh, it seems like 40% and and a large percentage of the population in Tel Aviv, the people I was meeting, share my ancestry. There's a sense of tribe or identity, right? And that is strong. And, you know, where does that fit in? 
to the teachings of anatta. It can be quite confusing, right? Where does that, where does that fit in? And uh, the second, almost, uh, almost immediately following experience was, you know, it was almost like these are my people. And this almost immediately following thought was, my people are in a pickle. <laughs> Right. This is a this is a really you know they're in an, uh, you know a deep intense unresolved conflict that seems very close to if it can be healed it would be so amazing for the world right you know and uh, you know so many other conflicts and forms of oppression are related to this conflict in the Middle East so immediately I had the sense of oh these are these share my ancestry and I and they or we are we're in a really rough situation, right? You know, I could feel that, feel that there. And, and so I just thought I'd say a little bit about that sense of identity and, again, have a few, uh, few images. Uh, you know, it, w- it was amazing just talking with people. My ancestry is Eastern European, two from Lithuania and two from near Odessa. I actually met one of the Kabbalistic rabbis, had almost identical background. He had one grandmother, grandparent from uh, Lithuania, from, from Vilna, and one from uh, Riga in Latvia, and two from near Odessa. It was, you know, it was like almost identical background. And so I thought I'd just have an image. Let's see. Oops. So these are some um, images from Lithuania, where, where I have visited twice, of uh, the area where my grandmother came from, one of my grandmothers came from and near where my father came from. And uh, it was very interesting. I got an email from a friend whose ancestry is also that. Do you know who else comes from uh, Lithuania? You know who actually also comes from Vilna? Uh, a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people you may know. How many people here? Quite several here. And... Um, there was, there was a very interesting article which was written as kind of a love letter to uh, Leonard Cohen. Because Leonard Cohen's uh, ancestry comes from Vilna, as does that of Bob Dylan. And in fact, I went to uh, an exhibit at a Tel Aviv museum, which was uh, an exhibit uh, on Bob Dylan's 75th birthday. And, you know, mostly just had some great images and stuff, but it also had uh, showed some of his Jewish ancestry. And if you know Bob Dylan, you know that's a little complex right, in his history. But uh, other people who have that ancestry from uh, Vilna include uh, Mark Chagall, Nadine Gordimer, you know, the, who's won the Nobel Prize, the South African uh, writer, Amos Oz, J.D. Salinger, John Stewart. Did you know that? John Stewart, Scarlett Johansson, Emma Goldman. Anyone? She, she was the anarchist from about almost 100 years ago. Uh, Aaron Copeland, Michael Bloomberg, Menachem uh, Begin, Benjamin Netanyahu, the current, uh, what is it, prime minister you know, of, of Israel, and also the singer Pink. <laughs> all come from the same background. So there was, you know, for me, this is something about the sense of uh, connection, you know. Um, this is actually my, 
great-grandparents right after they came from Lithuania around the turn of the 20th century, um, came to New York City. So, you know, there's something about, and I guess we all have this, but there's something about this sense of uh, connection. And I think it's particularly intense if you're of Jewish background, because for many of us, there's been a sense of never quite feeling like we belong, right? If you know that, that's quite, of course, it's very strong in 2,000 years of history. And it's part of the backdrop for the, of course, for the um, establishment of the state of Israel. And I know in my own personal experience, it's related to um, feeling different, not quite feeling I belonged. You know, when I was growing up, anti-Semitism was still there. It was not real intense, but it was there, you know. And I, you know, and I know it was, it was stronger for my parents. My father couldn't go to medical school because of Jewish quotas. And some of you may know that there were quotas at universities and medical schools up to the early 1960s in the U.S., right? I mean, forget about other countries. In the U.S., that was there. And, and so for me, it was... Um, you know, quite, uh, quite powerful to have this sense of connection, which I also have felt in Berkeley at the uh, Jewish Film Festival. You know, the same sense of kind of shared ancestry, but of course very intense there. And again, it was at the same time that I was experiencing this sense of there's a lot of pain, conflict, suffering connected with the current situation. So how do we relate to that? So there's this sense of how does that sense of connection relate to the teachings on anatta. What is, what, how is that part of it? The sense of identity, which we all have, right? We all have some identity. So we're all members of some tribe in some way or some ethnicity. And how does that relate? And what's a healthy way to relate to that? Of course, we can be overly tribal and not connect with these dimensions of not-self, which I mentioned earlier, but how do they go together? I'm not purporting to give an answer, but more offer that as a question. Um, and there were just a lot of experiences which sort of brought out the sense of uh, Jewish identity. This is, uh, this is Mount Zion in uh, Jerusalem. So I, you know, I'd be there. I couldn't help but think of the uh, you know, Bob Marley song, you know, you know, uh, some of, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the soundtrack, but some of you know the song Jamming from Bob Marley where he says, Holy Mount Zion, Holy Mount Zion, just sitteth in Mount Zion, you know, and ruleth all creation. Talking about Mount Zion, well, here it was. I was at, I was, that's Mount Zion, right? That's, so these um, kind of strong images. So here's a picture of me at the Western Wall. Right, this is the holiest place in Judaism. So again, I'm not particularly religious from a Jewish perspective, but there's something about that exploration of identity, and I hope I hope this is interesting for you because because um, you know the dangers of doing something like this are the dangers of having you know what used to be the slideshow after a vacation <laughs> with families. I hope I hope I'm being brief enough with all this. So at a certain point, I'm just going to stop and have discussion. I'm, I'm not going to get through what I had. But anyway, this was, I, I made several trips to the Western Wall, which is, again, this is the um, holiest place in, in all of Judaism, right? 
It's the, this was uh, the wall for the original temple, which you know was uh, destroyed twice. The last time was uh, uh, almost 2,000 years ago, right? So, yeah. Uh, what wasn't the other Donald at the, at the Western Wall? Um, I believe so. Not at the same time. Yeah, yeah. One of the other Donalds. Okay. Well, it, it was intense, you know, and I, my, my prayers were for uh, um, peace and transformation of the conflict. That's what, you know, if you look carefully at the wall, you can see that there are pieces of paper in the wall. Those are prayers. I, I did that. I put a prayer into the wall of that kind. This was, I, I went, this was on my second trip, so this was towards the end of my stay. Um, and I had, you know, had a pretty good exposure. But it was a pretty intense moment. You know, you go there and connect with the wall. There were, you know, I have a lot of other pictures I'm not showing you, but there were, you know, there would be, the wall was, you know, um, I don't know, um, possibly 100 yards long, and there are just people lined up with the wall. And there are, you know, bar mitzvahs taking place, all sorts of things taking place. And there's, as you, as you know, this has been in the news because there was a rescinding of a promise by, the, by Netanyahu about having a um, lack of segregation between men and women, which was there when I was there. So that, that was controversial, and especially in the U.S. You know. um, okay. He rescinded a promise that he had made to have a, uh, a third area in addition to a male-only and female-only area for both genders or all genders, right? And he had uh, rescinded that promise as a widely interpreted as a political move to get the favor of one of his voting blocks, which are the ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, that was the general interpretation. See, I'm, I'm quite savvy now, about, more savvy about Israeli politics, so... And so this is the uh, Tower of King David. I'll just show a few other images. This is in Svat, which I really love this city of Svat. It's not a large city, but it's, um, it was the city of the Kabbalah. That founded, it was founded after 1492 when a lot of the Kabbalistic rabbis, who were a lot of them were based in Spain or I think North Africa, um, some of you, most of you know probably that in 1492, in addition to uh, Columbus, it was also the expulsion of Jews from Spain, right? And they went in different directions. Some of them went, uh, some of the Kabbalistic rabbis went directly to uh, Palestine, you know, and, and lived in this city called Sfat, which during the 16th century was the largest city in all of Palestine, Either the largest or the largest city, largest Jewish city, I'm not sure. And so it was quite a beautiful city. Um, this is one of the uh, synagogues. There were some very ancient synagogues, although a lot of them, I think, were rebuilt because it's also, this is on fault lines, uh, both political and connected with the earth. And there were a series of earthquakes that destroyed a lot of the synagogues about every 200 years. <laughs> so... Anyway, but this is one of the great synagogues. And it's, again, very powerful to be in this. So this is, again, under this theme of connection and identity. 
This is someone who visited there from Vilna. This was the great uh, scholar from Vilna at the end of the 18th century who visited and actually had a whole um, synagogue which he had built in, uh, in Jerusalem. This is one of the other great rabbis named, this was one of the original people who came from Spain named Joseph Caro. This was one of something, let's see. Oh, that's, yeah, this is the synagogue that he was part of. And then this was just something on the, there was a lot of impromptu activities. This was a klezmer band playing for an impromptu bar mitzvah on the streets, which I just happened to meet the klezmer musicians and uh, asked if I could take a photo. And then they said yes, and we're preparing for a, a bar mitzvah, which came along about three minutes later, and I just joined it for the next half hour. And this was, it was kind of fun. This was a restaurant we ate at with... Uh, Yemeni cuisine, quite good. This was one of the uh, rabbis who I got to know, named, who was actually originally from the U.S. And this is this is from another one of the synagogues. This is the model of the Sephiro, which is the model for uh, the Kabbalah of sort of the, the model of how the uh, sacred or the divine emanates out and creates the material and the mental worlds. I won't get into it, but that's, that's, what, that's what this is about. Okay, so let me see how our time is. Uh, I'm about to transition to the theme of how do we work with dukkha. Maybe I'll just do that for five minutes. And, and, and then do more on that next time. So I'm sorry for the lack of precise planning, but like I say, this is pretty raw and just developed in the last few days. So, um, you know, another really question is, how do, how, do, how do we have our practice be a guide for working with suffering, with pain, with uh, dukkha? What's, you know, how do we bring compassion and wisdom and skillful action to situations of suffering. This is at the heart of our practice, right? This is, you know, I teach, especially in the last six months, I've been teaching a lot about empathy and compassion and saying that it's, it's a quality that's deeply needed right now in the U.S. and many places. Empathy with people who are suffering, marginalized, and so forth. And it's been a theme in the last, uh, actually the last nine or ten months in my teaching here. Empathy is that ability to tune in to the experience of another. You know, and it goes hand in hand with compassion. So how do we relate to, to the suffering um, of the world? And essentially, what I, my quick version of the situation in Israel and Palestine is that you have the suffering of 2,000 years of Jewish history culminating in the Holocaust, lead to the founding of a Jewish state um, on land where Palestinians were living. Right? In a sense, you know, one image that some people gave was that of uh, Jewish people jumping out of a burning building in Europe 
and landing on Palestinians, right? And so that's essentially the perspective I have, which is that of, it's really a tragic situation that can be resolved, but it's essentially tragic. And, you know, I like um, one of the, you know, one, one of the books that I like, I've done some reading since I've come back. One of them is a very nice short book by Amos Oz called How to Cure a Fanatic. And it's a very nice essay um, in the first essay here, which is an essay called, it's on, it's on the conflict, it's called Between Right and Right. That's his name for the conflict. And I thought I'd read just... Um, This is what he says. Who are the good guys? That's what every well-meaning European, left-wing European, intellectual European, liberal European always wants to know. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Um, When it comes to the foundations of the Israeli-Arab conflict, in particular the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, things are not so straightforward. It's not a Wild West movie. It's not a struggle between good and evil. Rather, it is a tragedy in the ancient and most precise sense of the world, a clash between right and right, a clash between one very powerful, deep, and convincing claim and another very different, but no less convincing, no less powerful, no less humane claim. That seems like, for me, a helpful framework to look at this. Again, there are complexities, and a lot of them, but it's essentially a situation which is not understandable without understanding the Holocaust. And, you know, I just thought I'd show a few images here. Whoops, this is, this is just some, these are all from, I went to two museums related to the Holocaust in, in Israel. And this, this was from one of them. They're just images from the 1930s. This is one is an image from Germany in the 1930s. And then next one, this is from Poland, also in the 1930s. Again, these are, you know, uh, images. This is a very deeply anti-Semitic image, of course, and this is connected, of course, with the deaths of, of millions. And so this is, there was an exhibit at one of the museums on the uh, Holocaust as it took place in the Netherlands, and these are some images from that exhibit. This is once the Nazis have taken over and they have their... Dutch collaborators, and this basically says, uh, Jews not welcome. This is a small village in the Netherlands. This was what the Jews had to wear. Again, just a very brief reminder of the situation. And this is uh, Dutch Jews on their, basically on the, many of them on their way to a, a transit camp, and many of them would then go to Auschwitz. So this is the background for all of this history. This is the Warsaw Ghetto. You know, again, this literally were people jumping out of burning buildings. So this is, these are, these are famous photos. Probably you've seen some, some of you have seen those. And then here's also what happens in 1948. Nakba is the Palestinian word for catastrophe, right? This is, these are images of the uh, uh, Palestinians who were the main occupants of the land that's currently Israel, um, having to leave sometimes for fear of massacres. There were massacres there, and sometimes from the army, and they they left in large numbers. Not entirely, because Israel still has 20% uh, Arabs, actually. 
mostly Muslim, also Christian and Druze and so forth. Here is a scene of a massacre. They, they did exist. They did occur, rather. There are some other images from that situation, 1948. Refugee camp. And again, here is some further images of how it is today. This is a picture from East Jerusalem. You can see this is more detail at the top. That's the separation wall. That's a Jewish settlement right above, right? And it's East Jerusalem, Muslim right below. So that wall runs throughout much of Israel. Sometimes it's a fence. Um, Maybe I'll just show a few more images. This was where I visited in uh, the, the village. And there were, whoops, there This is a checkpoint near a Jewish settlement. There are checkpoints everywhere. Some checkpoints, uh, some of the Palestinians coming to work may take as many as three hours to get through. So it's just one one difficult condition. When I went through East Jerusalem and had this kind of guided tour, it's just one thing after another showing different forms. Uh, it It is oppressive, no way around it. There's another, this is the checkpoint into the West Bank that was... Um, one where there are the longest waits. This was a sign. I don't know if you can see it. This road leads to Area A under the Palestinian Authority. The entrance for Israeli citizens is forbidden, dangerous to your lives, and is is against the Israeli law. So you have this situation of uh, people, you know, a lot of uh, tension, tremendous historical pain built up, uh, the army is everywhere. This was in East Jerusalem. This was police and army. And you can see uh, that some of the, the, you know, what was, uh, if you've ever been to Israel, you notice that immediately there are a lot of soldiers with big guns around. And, you know, and there, everyone has to be in the army, 18 to 20. So there are a lot of, a lot of young men and women, including there, you, know, you can see right at the end, that's probably an 18 or 19 year old woman with a, I don't know, submachine gun, basically. That's everywhere, you know. I would go on buses. I remember one bus, I took a three-hour ride. There were a bunch of soldiers in the back. I sat with the soldiers just opposite me, four feet away, was a soldier casually with a gun this big on his lap, right? That's that's very common if you've been to Israel. And here are some other images. These are very, very common images, especially in Jerusalem, but also on public transit. Again, it's a young woman. Very, very common image. This is some more images from East Jerusalem. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just stop here. And um, for me, like the question is, how do you work with um, a situation and it could be personal, it could be collective. How do you work with a situation where there's historical unresolved pain? Again, it could be personal, like the example of the divorce. I think it's not, in principle, different. How do you work with unresolved historical pain where there's often trauma leading to fear? Some of my most interesting discussions were about how do you work with a situation where basically both people are traumatized? How do you work with that? I think 
this is where Dharma resources, I think, are incredibly valuable. You know, as well as understanding of how you work with very deep pain, because a lot of the way, a lot of the guiding realities and reactions are based, I think, on unresolved pain and trauma, which leads to, you can see almost how the Holocaust is still there. People are saying, you know, they've always tried to kill us. They won't kill us now, right? There's just that, the narratives are very strong. So how do you work with that? I think I'm going to give more detail to that next time. But it's really, that's a question. Again, I think we have some counterpart of that in the U.S. We have historical suffering in our communities, you know. And maybe I'll finish by saying one of, one of the insights, which I had almost immediately, I remember I had kind of like three insights immediately. One was, you know, there's a deep sense of connection. Number two, we're in a pickle. You know, this is a very intense, difficult situation. And number three... Uh, people tend to normalize the difficult situation. And how do I do that in the United States? Because we do. And I think my mind especially goes to this suffering of African-Americans, but you could go to different groups, right? How do we normalize unresolved historical trauma and suffering and just go about our daily lives and forget about it, right? That's what people do in Israel. There's this conflict. Most people do not pay attention to it. Right? How do we do the same thing? So maybe I'll stop here and see if there are any further questions or reflections. Maybe some of you have had some uh, background in this area. <clears throat> we have a question up front. And maybe say your name and as well. Um, so interesting that, that, um, my first time here and you would have this and I, during the time we were share, what was in my mind that I didn't say was, um, uh, a a sense of, um, grief for the whole Middle East situation and and people in Gaza and, um, this sadness as a Jewish person that, um, not only did, I mean, it, how wonderful that, that the, my people survived, but how we continue to survive on the backs of other people. Right. And, and that it, you know, Israel needs, needs to exist from, from my experience, but also all the Palestinians need to exist. Right. And so how was that for you as a Jewish person to be in a place where um, the, the, because in the same way as we, we don't all agree with our, who's leading our country, like all the Israelis don't right. agree with how the, the political decisions. Right. Um, but, you know, so what would, one question is, what's your, what was your experience? And then two is, how, what is your experience of Israelis' experience? Because how do you, when you live with that kind of tension, both for yeah. your own well-being yeah. and the awareness that others are suffering? Yeah. 
like do you do are people just not aware do they go to sleep do they how do they hold that tension and pain yeah yeah that's good questions uh, thank you um yeah i think i think attending to um sadness and grief is is a very fundamental part of the healing and transformation process for sure i felt that a lot i mean it was kind of implied by what i was saying about those two first moments you know both the connection and then the sense of there's this intense unresolved conflict and that like that image of jumping from a burning building and hurting others when you do that it's one one image so yeah there's a tremendous amount of sadness it does seem it does seem like uh people initially in uh Israel were some of the founders they were I mean I actually brought a quote which I did not read this is from one of the places I visited which was uh a, a kibbutz and it was basically someone saying um you know uh this was we had no idea that we were on land that had previously been a Palestinian village we were so bound up with our own suffering you know we had lost families we had no home you know we had been in transit for 2 years in camps and whatever and we were just so preoccupied with our own experience that we did not know that we we were on the site of a former village right because a lot of them had been destroyed and 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 this this was someone who had settled there in 1948 or 9 and the interview was took place in 2003 and she said she said of course of course now it's different <laughs> that's what she said but at the time there was there wasn't that sense of uh you know i i think there there was some because i i talked with a lot of people who who knew the history of the kibbutzim which is very interesting you know and that there actually were some splits within some kibbutzim between those who were more nationalist and those who wanted some kind of shared reconciliation with palestinian villages they were in the minority for sure but there were some like that i heard stories like that when i i talked to a lot of people whose families went way back to the uh 1930s and so forth and some of the kibbutzim and um so there was that sense but um yeah so i think that you know some intense process involving grief and mourning is really part of the healing process number 1 Num- number 2 what's going on for everyday israelis you know including most of the people that i met who were into meditation right um there was a there was a small group of people who i met with who were doing engaged practice who were doing different projects such as uh helping palestinian villages with olive harvest with uh being there for um sharing uh protests against house demolitions that sort of thing um i haven't talked about a lot of the details of what i actually saw and came to know about some of which i knew about before but a lot of which i didn't just the level of detail of basically oppressive policies which made me think of jim crow to some extent in the 1920s you know in the us some of it was really uh you know one one negative policy after another you know that's that's within the occupied territories you know it's it's different within uh it's different within uh, Israel so i don't know i think that there's there's a capacity of the human mind to segment and to not deal with something and i think we do that ourselves right 
We do that with any of our large systemic issues. We do that with climate change. Many of us do climate change, racism, whatever. Right? We, we are able to do that. We are able to live our ordinary lives knowing that there are these major unresolved systemic issues. Right? So I don't think it's particularly different. And you know, it's for some people, they're more aware of it than others. And there are, you know, I think there are, um, among some of the people I met, they were actually doing small actions which they thought would be helpful, such as I mentioned. Okay, please. My question is regarding that exhibit that you were at. What? The exhibit that you were at and they were going to try to shut it down. I I have a lot of questions about the fact that it's supposed to be an open society. Right. um, Right. And and yet they are saying, oh, this is maybe questionable for the government. That's right. Why are, why can't, they allow that and they have some questions asked about it. You know, that's the thing. Um, well, I think we may be looking at similar questions in the U.S. in the near future, <laughs> or maybe right now, right? It's, um, yeah, it's supposed to be a democracy. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of abridgments on uh, free speech yes. uh, that, that are occurring. This would be one of them. You have a group that just has an art gallery where they happen to host I to, happened to host this group called Breaking the Silence. They also hosted me. <laughs> I right. don't think the government was upset about me, but they were, um, they were uh, upset and they threatened to close it. I think from what I, I heard, a number of examples like that. You know, and there are a number of examples where there's uh, less than the kind of democracy we would expect. I mean, I saw that a lot in East Jerusalem where the level of resources given to East Jerusalem is minuscule compared to what's given to West Jerusalem. One of the images I didn't show was I saw everywhere there's rotting garbage. There's a lack of garbage pickup. You know, that's very, very common there. And, you know, as well as all sorts of other um, infringements on free speech, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, I heard from a lot of the Israelis, this is not... You know, we pretend to be a democracy, but it's not a full democracy in many ways. And again, it's related to the question of fear, insecurity. What do you do when there's fear? You know, again, I think that one of the big challenges that we'll have in this country is what do we do collectively when there's a major terrorist attack with our current administration? It's going to happen, right? What's, what's the, and, and there's an abridgment of uh, political freedoms. What's the response? I think it's good to be thinking about that. It's going to happen, right? So last Thank one, you. okay. I've always been, cu- I'm Marianne. I've yeah. always been curious as to why the Arabs and the Jews are in conflict when it was during the Holocaust, it was not the Arabs who, who persecuted the Jews, so both the Jewish people and the Palestinians are oppressed. And of all tribes, I would think that the Jewish tribe would be so compassionate to the Palestinians because they are so oppressed. When, when, when the Palestinians, the Arabs, had nothing to do with what occurred to the Jews during the Holocaust. Yeah, it's, uh, the actual history is a little complex. <laughs> I won't, I won't go into the detail. Um, but the, you know, if I had to give uh, broad brushstrokes, 
response. And maybe in next week I'll give a little more detail, you know, because the history is complex. Um, uh, essentially, uh, essentially, the oppression of the Palestinians is, is because of the creation of Israel. So, I mean, that's the, um, that's the essential response is that, like I said, there's this tragic situation where one people coming out of the Holocaust and the burning in Europe, you know, um, you know, pursue the idea which had been around for some time to have a homeland uh, where there was ancestral homeland. It's true, you know, for the Jewish people. Um, and I think you're right, that, or maybe not right, but there, there's certainly in Jewish tradition, you have, uh, you know, amazing resources related to the themes of justice and the themes of compassion connected particularly with the Jewish prophets you know, we I, we joked often when I was there that if the Jewish prophets were around now, they'd probably be uh, targeted. You know, people thought that. You know, I, he- I heard that from quite a few Israelis. You know, but uh, so you have these resources, and you have the resources also for compassion in uh, Islamic tradition. Um, and but the uh, people didn't make the connection in 1948. Some people did, but most people did not. And then you had a very oppressive situation. And, you know, then you also had the, you know, I'm I'm not going to go too much into the Palestinian reaction response in 1948, but there were, you know, there was a lot of uh, deep anxiety and hostility that was developing since the 1920s as there was increasing Jewish settlement in Palestine. And there were there were a number of massacres by Palestinians of Jews that took place in, from uh, 1929 on. That, that's there in the history. So I think, but what you say, I think, is ultimately the basis, compassion and understanding of mutual oppression, I think is the basis in the long term. So I think your question, the basis for your question, I would say, yes, that's the basis for long-term resolution is understanding that mutual oppression, understanding this as a tragic situation. You know, and again, you know, you can have different narratives which put the blame on one side more than the other. And I think those are, for me, those are problematic. But I think some sense of the um, uh, mutual compassion on the basis of the uh, long-term suffering is uh, a basis for some resolution. And again, I think it's always, you know, if we look to generalize this, which is part of my interest here, not just to talk about the Middle East, is that what do you do with uh, unresolved historical suffering? You have to go to some of what we've talked about. You have to go, you have to somehow, if you don't deal with grief, mourning, unresolved trauma, fear, pain, um, and so forth, then people are just going to keep acting out, which is what's happening now. They're going to, and again, it's something we see in our own lives as well. And you can see it in unresolved pain in the United States. That if you don't go into the, the depths of it, there's just going to be repetition. And we can, you know, that's, that's, that's what the Dharma is teaching us, right? So how do you, 
how do you work? Some of the people who are doing the best work, I think, are trying to go to those deeper roots, both Palestinians and Israelis, and it's not easy. They're in the minority. They're, you know, the the uh, the narratives of fear and uh, we are right are are quite dominant in many places, you know. Um, and so, but something like that basis of going into again, this is what our Dharma practice teaches us, you know. How do you you how can you see how your actions are coming out of reactivity? based on pain, right? And so we need ways of collectively going into the sadness, the pain, the trauma, the fear, and transforming it. That's what's necessary. And uh, I think um, it's very possible, you know? Uh, Maybe I'll just close with something hopeful, and then I think we'll have to finish. Well, I'm willing to keep talking. Um, You know, we did do one retreat, which was on engaged practice, And as I mentioned, I taught on compassion, empathy, and skillful work with conflict. And it was a joy. And uh, it just was very beginning work. But one thing that I did was I gave them a model of skillful conflict transformation. And we studied that for some time. And then I gave people three scenarios of of, uh, hypothetical or actual conflicts. And the last one, was actually a conflict between two countries, which had existed. It was between Peru and Ecuador. They had disputed land uh, on their borders at the uh, top of the Andes. And they had had four wars starting in 1830. A lot of people killed from the 1830s up till the 1990s. And I gave them this example. And given our model... I asked them to resolve the conflict. And a number of Israelis got the exact solution to the conflict in five minutes. Because actually conflicts aren't that hard to resolve. What's hard is to go through the fear, the trauma, the sadness. But when you actually look at it, they're actually actually not, I mean, okay, I'm saying that, aware of the Middle East and all that, but I'm, but I, I believe that. But so we, I gave them this conflict and asked them to resolve it, given our model. And a good number of people within five minutes had resolved the conflict. They created a jointly administered uh, binational zone in this disputed territory that both countries administered. They turned it into a national park or a natural park with tourists. And that, that's, what, that's actually what Peru and Ecuador did in 1998. And that conflict uh, has been resolved since then, right? And then easier than the Middle East, but not, you know, hard enough that they'd had wars for 150 years, right? So, um, again, the hard thing is actually getting there. But I think that uh, if people have uh, training, and I think this is one place that uh, the Dharma in Israel is very significant, if they have training in mindfulness, empathy, compassion, Skillful work with conflict, working with fear, working with mourning, opening to sadness, skillful work with trauma. And a significant percentage of people do that. I think it's going in the direction that will, that will help there be a resolution, which would be, think you have a resolution there. Wouldn't that be incredible for the human species? Right? I think I, I hold that as possible. Okay. So I wanted to end there. <laughs>
Okay, so uh, thank you for your kind listening. I hope this wasn't too much of a family slideshow. I hope that was interesting and relevant to our practice, and may the benefits be offered to, uh, to all beings, which includes us. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.